it is my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, uh, Peter S. Williams. Uh, it's actually his first time speaking with us, so I'm uh, really looking forward to what Peter's going to bring to us today. He's um, come on recommendation from, from someone we've worked with previously, so I'm uh, really excited about what Peter's going to bring to us. I listened to some of his content online, uh, really enjoyed it, really challenging, really stretching, so Please do give yourself to these next two sessions on apologetics. Um, Peter is a Christian philosopher and apologist, and also an assistant professor in communication and worldviews, uh, and works uh, in Norway and in this country. I'll let you ask Peter more about that. I'm sure he'll be touching on some of his talks. Uh, he um, has written several books um, and also involved in lots of speaking engagements, lots of writing, lots of debates uh, and broadcasting and also um, working in conferences and with A-level students. So a wide range of areas that Peter's been involved in and it is my great pleasure to invite up our next speaker. Yeah, just put it on the stand, yeah. that's fine. Grand, thank you very much. It's lovely to, to be up to London for the afternoon uh, from Southampton, where I'm based, uh, to be with you and to have the first opportunity of the year to try out my summer jacket. Yes, summer, summer teaching jacket. There we go. Um, so we're gonna, um, we've decided to try and cram quite a lot into this afternoon. So forgive me if at some stages you feel a little bit like the cup. In that cup, my cup floweth over in that verse, um, but I hope that you will uh, latch on to uh, something here and there of what we're doing. Uh, we've got notes that will go around for each of the three uh, different uh, uh, topics that I'm doing, and uh, I'm also recording both for you and for my own uh, podcast as well. Uh, you can uh, see the uh, website address there uh, where you can go to and you can get all sorts of uh, free stuff, and eventually these talks will hopefully end up on the podcast channel there. Uh, so you don't have to spend all your time furiously scribbling down notes. Uh, you will be able to uh, get a, a record uh, later on when I uh, catch up to it in my podcasting schedule. So we thought we'd start off with looking at what is apologetics, uh, rather than uh, me actually doing some, as it were. And indeed, most of what I'll do today will not be sort of just giving you the, well, here's the answer. Uh, I don't think that's particularly helpful. Uh, indeed, even when you're actually doing apologetics with non-Christians, it's not always the most helpful thing to simply say, well, here's what I think, or here's how I would answer that question. And I'll model that in our uh, second uh, session as well, uh, in terms of uh, helping people to frame and understand for themselves and think through for themselves uh, an area uh, of uh, concern. Uh, I call this uh, apologetics uh, in 3D, because 3D cinema is all the rage at the moment. But I really am talking about uh, apologetics as something that's holistic, that involves the whole uh, person. And I'd like just to kick us off with this uh, fascinating quote from the French Christian philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal. This is actually the, uh, the death mask of Blaise Pascal there. Uh, so that's what it looked like. And uh, in his notes for an apologetics work that he never actually published, but which uh, the notes for this unpublished work have become very famous as his uh, pensées or thoughts, uh, thought number 46 was this. Order. Men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it might be true. 
To cure that, we have to begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason, that it is worthy of veneration and should be given respect. Next, it should be made lovable, should make the good wish it were true, then show that it is indeed true. Then he adds these afterthoughts, worthy of veneration because it's properly understood mankind. It sort of scratches where we itch, as it were. Worthy of affection because it promises the true good. I'll just let that percolate in the back of our minds as we go through. So you might think only a philosopher could get excited about, oh, let's define something. You know, what is apologetics? But I, I hope you'll find... Um, this material useful it's the sort of stuff that I have constantly in the back of my mind when I'm approaching an apologetic kind of situation, an evangelistic situation Um, it gives me uh, a sort of map of what I'm doing that helps me stay on course as I'm doing this the key uh, famous verse on apologetics in the Bible, the one from which we get the word, which is of course a terrible word in English because it, it sounds like you're to- telling people how to apologise for something in the sense of saying, I'm terribly sorry that I'm a Christian. Sorry about that. You know, Let me make my excuses. Um, it does not mean that in the original uh, Greek language, of course. So in 1 Peter 3.15, all Christians are commanded to always be prepared to give an answer. And the word translated into it, the English word answer there is the Greek Apologia. Now, apologia was what your um, legal brief would do for you in the court system. It literally means a, a word back, um, but it's kind of like the, the defence speech in a court of law. To give an apologia, a reasoned defence of your position. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And note here that although the verse has a focus, yes, on on reason, it also has a focus on attitude. And I'm I'm told by those who know about the languages that the word gentleness refers to the the other person with whom you're engaging, and the word respect uh, there refers to one's attitude towards God, whom one is representing as his ambassador in that situation. In the Apologetic Study Bible, Kenneth Boer tells us that the complexity of the problem of defining apologetics, uh, a diversity of approaches has been taken in defining the meaning, the scope and purpose of apologetics. Um, So uh, here, at least, I will argue for a a definition that I find helpful. Um, This may not be the uh, last word on the topic, however, of course. Now, there are a number of what I would call sort of popular myths associated with um, thinking about apologetics. A sort of, uh, there's a lot of, sort of either-or thinking that goes on here that I'd like to just um, try and uh, um, prick the bubble of briefly. Um, apologetics and evangelism. Indeed, uh, my friend Peter May uh, has a wonderful... Uh, article on the UCCFB Thinking website in which he pushes for us to use the language of persuasive evangelism so that we have it all in in the one phrase rather than getting into thinking in terms of either doing evangelism or we're doing apologetics Uh, but actually they go so hand in hand 
um, that can you really separate them? Uh, Doug Grutheis uh, says the artificial separation of evangelism from apologetics must end. The Apostle Paul serves as a model for us. He both proclaimed and defended the gospel in the book of Acts, for example. Jesus also rationally defended his views as well as just proclaiming them. Uh, You don't find Jesus or the apostles getting up on a soapbox and merely proclaiming. You find them constantly engaging in, in dialogue and argumentation with people. Christian archaeologist Steve Collins even goes so far as to say the biblical gospel includes not only the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also the apologetic evidence to support it. The gospel isn't fully communicated apart from the supporting evidence. That evidence, that testimony is part of the good news. News, a journalistic report of testimony of to what happened. Apologetics or spiritual warfare? I think apologetics and spiritual warfare. Uh, think of a verse like 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, or the word there might be sort of fortresses. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So, according to Paul there, this is Rembrandt's famous painting of St. Paul, spiritual warfare is about demolishing arguments that get in the way of people knowing Christ and taking every thought captive. Um, I would say also that apologetics is both rational and relational. That that there shouldn't be a sort of either or in our thinking about um, evangelism being sort of relational and communal and so on. Or it being about the rational. It's both involved. Bryce Brooks says Christ commanded his followers to advance his message by the irresistible force of love and the power of truth. You think of a verse like, we must be speaking the truth in love. It's not like you must either speak the truth or you must love people. You must do both. And I love this uh, quote from Nicola Veal. It says, people in relationships need to inquire, learn, and build on what they know about each other. Relationships that are characterised by thoughtlessness are going nowhere. And we cannot trust others without testing their trustworthiness. We should build relationships in a rational way, and we should use rationality in a relational way. The Christian faith is about a relationship with God, and like any other relationship, this requires thought. (coughs) And finally, the... You can't argue people into the kingdom of God. Well, I know what people who say that mean. Uh, I guess they mean the same sort of thing as by that phrase, um, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Um, No, sure, I think you can make it pretty thirsty, though, and convince it of the appealingness of not being thirsty, and that the statement, if I drink that water, I will no longer be thirsty, is true, 
And by the time you've done all that and the sun's up really high, you know. <laughs> so uh, consider this testimony from a, a student uh, in Venezuela, of all places, who uh, wrote to me uh, out of the blue a couple of years ago. She said, as, as a graduate student of philosophy, I'm an eager reader of your books and online articles, which have been instrumental in my rejection of agnosticism and naturalism and have contributed strongly to make me a newborn Christian. And, of course, notice the word contributed there. Not the whole thing, but contributed. Um, I've discussed your published material in special classes with fellow students and philosophers here in Venezuela, and it's made some open-mind uh, sceptics, agnostics and atheists to rethink their views on morality and meaning under naturalism, the reasonability of intelligent design and the possibility or even probability of God's existence. In a few weeks, I'm going to discuss with them your latest book on Jesus. So thank you very much for that. Um, so it does work as well, as part of the mix. Being very inspired in this area by Francis Schaeffer, uh, one of the uh, two uh, great uh, Protestant writers of the 20th century in the field of apologetics, uh, the other, of course, being C.S. Lewis. And Francis uh, Schaeffer, uh, talking about apologetics in uh, the late 60s, said this, the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion, uh, but that the people with whom we are in contact may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. You see that emphasis on the sort of holistic he says, I'm only interested in an apologetic that leads in two directions. And one is to lead people to Christ as saviour. And the other is that after they're Christians, for them to realise the lordship of Christ over the whole of life. So, I've developed a, a way of thinking about apologetics that tries to take into account this sort of holistic emphasis. And at first it sounds a little long-winded, and then we go through the three keys and then we'll come back and it'll all sort of hang together a little more for you. Um, but I think of apologetics as the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality, and we'll go into what we mean by spirituality here, across spiritualities, we'll look at spirituality, through the responsible use of rhetoric, we'll have a little look at rhetoric, as being objectively true and good and beautiful. So let's think about those three little sections briefly. A, a spirituality is, if you like, a, a, a way of life, a way of relating to reality. And you do that through a combination of what you believe is true and false about reality, the, the attitudes of your heart that you adopt towards what you believe to be true and false, um, your attitudes, your emotions, yes, but... but more than your emotions, your, your choices, your commitments of the heart, what you decide to invest in, as it were. And that combination of belief and attitude leads you to behave in certain ways or not behave in certain ways in the world. Um, to pick up my Baptist upbringing, three points beginning with the same letter, head, heart and hands, the three H's combine, that is your spirituality. Now, different... People have different spiritualities because they will f put different content into those categories. 
people's spiritualities will overlap, but where they differ is because there's different content, different beliefs, different attitudes, different actions. And this becomes a self-reinforcing loop, a way of life in someone's life. In biblical terms, their faith leading to works. Um, because I believe in there, there is a God, and because I have a certain positive attitude towards him, I bother doing things like praying, going to church. But because I pray and go to church and spend my time doing those kind of things, that makes it much more natural and, and easy for me to believe that there is a God. <laughs> And to have the right attitude towards him, because I'm spending time with him. Uh, So it becomes all sort of bound up together in a person's life. And that's why evangelism, apologetics, is difficult. Because when you say to a non-Christian, hey, become a Christian, you're not simply saying, change your mind about an intellectual abstract issue. You know, now tick the yes boxes to is there a God and is Jesus the Son of God and so on. Instead of the no boxes or the I don't know boxes, what you're, what you're asking really is for them to reorientate the thing that they've built their way of life around. And that affects the whole of their personality and their relationships across the board. So it's a big ask. Of course, Jesus, in answering the question to the greatest commandment, um, seems to me was was here way before me, uh, that he uh, understood about this structure of persons, that we are spiritual beings. He talked about true spirituality, meaning to love God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. You see those three categories coming through, and you see them all over the place in the Bible once you have them in mind. So... Entering into a relationship with God through Christ himself as the gate, leading you to love God with everything that you have and love neighbour and yourself uh, in that uh, context, doing unto others as you would have them do to you and so on. So um, Paul, Colossians 3, 15 to 17, you see, talking about hearts, teaching, doing, actions, attitudes, beliefs. The response of the crowd on, on Pentecost to Peter's first persuasive evangelistic sermon, uh, where you'll see lots of apologetics woven in there, particularly use of Old Testament prophecy and so on. Um, when the people heard this message, when they believed the truth claims about Jesus and the resurrection that the disciples were giving them, they were cut to the heart, they had a certain attitudinal response, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And, of course, 1 Peter 3.15, actions, giving, giving reason, doing, attitudes, hope, gentleness, respect, beliefs, prepared to answer, to give reasons. So that's why I think spirituality is a useful kind of grid uh, to have in mind. And spirituality is communicated through the traditional three elements of uh, classical rhetoric going all the way back to, to Aristotle, which is something I th- certainly think uh, St. Paul, given his Greek intellectual upbringing, knew about. So rhetoric is a term that has a bit of a bad rap these days. Uh, we tend to apply it simply to advertisers and politicians, uh, spin doctors, uh, and so on. Uh, but it didn't have that bad a rep when it was uh, first talked about uh, in the 4th century BC by Aristotle, in his book on rhetoric, for example, where he defines rhetoric as the power 
to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. And by that he means what, observing what is actually persuasive about something and helping people to see that, th- that which is persuasive. Not making up something that will perhaps persuade people but shouldn't do, which is what most adverts today are involved in doing. So I love this quote from uh, Stratford Caldicott, uh, a Christian writer on education, who, who says this, Rhetoric is not a set of techniques to impress it's oratory or eloquence. I remember St Paul being criticised for not being an eloquent uh, speaker or orator. Uh, nor a means of m- manipulating the will and emotions of others, sophistry, advertising, which Plato was very down on, but rather a way of liberating the freedom of others by showing them the truth in a form they can understand. So, see, when we're preaching the gospel to people, we're not engaged in advertising or sophistry or oratory. We're engaged in trying to liberate the freedom of others. You should know the truth and the truth shall set you free by showing them the truth in a form that they can understand and respond to, positively or negatively. You know, that's up to them. So Aristotle in his rhetoric said there were these three main modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word. The first kind, which he called ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker. Do I come across as a used car salesman? Or not? The second, pathos of putting the audience in a certain frame of mind. Um, think of uh, if you've ever heard Tchaikovsky's uh, Pathetic Symphony. Again, it doesn't translate very well into English because people might think you mean, oh, that's a really pathetic symphony. It's terrible, it's awful writing. <laughs> no, not pathetic, the French pathetic. Uh, gripping to the heart, pulling on the the heartstrings that was really emotionally engaging you know uh, pathos and the third logos which is a word familiar to many of us from the beginning of John's gospel of course logos or logic on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself and that these three elements go hand in hand in good communication of all kinds so of course these three elements of rhetoric match up with the three elements of spirituality. Beliefs are communicated rationally through logos, attitudes through pathos, actions uh, through uh, ethos. And Paul, in Colossians 4, 5-6, in giving advice on evangelism slash apologetics to his fellows, says, when you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Have good ethos. And hold their interest. Or um, in the more literal translation is be, be salty. Um, when you speak the message, have good pathos. Engage the heart. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. Which immediately puts you back in mind of 1 Peter 3.15 again. So Peter and Paul were both giving the same advice. But here you'll notice, although Paul's not exactly quoting from Aristotle, he he mentions the same three elements of classical rhetoric in the same order that Aristotle talks about them. Um, So whether he knew on rhetoric or not, he certainly knew the Greek intellectual tradition of of rhetoric and and so on, as is shown in Acts 17, where he gives the 
the formal speech to the philosophers at Areopagus in, in Athens and so on. So again, ethos, pesos and logos will plug into those three elements of 1 Peter 3, 15. So <coughs> apologetics is about persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities through the responsible use of those uh, elements of rhetoric by what standards are we judging success or failure here in communicating and so on? By the three traditional standards of the, uh, the values that the scholastic uh, Christian philosophers would call the transcendental values. Now, it's nothing to do with like Zen Buddhist transcendental meditation. Rather, those are, they're talking about uh, values, categories of, of of judging things that transcend the individual subjects in that they apply in all sorts of different subjects. So uh, is, is it beautiful applies within art, of course, but also applies within maths <laughs> and physics uh, and English literature uh, uh, and so on. Uh, is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? Bless you. <laughs> uh, Christian philosopher John Cottingham notes that, interesting, today, as opposed to sort of 20 years ago or so, the increasing consensus among philosophers is that some kind of objectivism of truth and value is correct. Now, the major question in philosophically in this area when you're talking about truth and goodness and morals and so on is the whole, well, is it just true for you, but not for me? Is there, you know, if I say the Holocaust was a bad thing, okay, and you say it's a good thing, well, there's a disagreement between us, but is it like one of us is right and one of us is wrong? Or is it like if I say, hmm, ice cream, I think I prefer strawberry today, and you say, mm, I think I prefer mint. Well, there's a difference of opinion about which we'd prefer, but it's not like you're, you're wrong to prefer mint, but... I think in the Holocaust case, if you said, no, it was fine, I think you'd be wrong. Um, so that whole disagreement about moral objectivism is something we discover, or subjectivism is something we can kind of make up or just sort of depends on us or our culture and so on. And Cottingham says that today, more and more philosophers are, are coming around to the view that there is something objective about truth and beauty and goodness. I love the way he puts it here. He says... They carry with them a sense of requirement or demand, all of these values. The true is that which is worthy of belief. And the beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. Paul in Philippians 4.8 would certainly be down with this objectivist view of value. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is, is true, no, not whatever is true for you, whatever is true, whatever is noble, is right, is pure, whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable beauty, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's lovely to see St. Paul standing so contemporary alongside a quote from a contemporary philosopher, isn't it? So hence you end up with this um, fantastic 3x3 three three grid, woo, which is on your worksheets, <laughs> of uh, 
the spirituality elements, which are communicated through the three elements of classical rhetoric and judged against the three elements of the transcendental values. So the beliefs of a spirituality are communicated through people's words and arguments, and you want to judge the beliefs of a worldview by the question, does it help me feel good about life? Oh, no, sorry. Um, Does it work for me? No. Um, By the question, is it true? That's the real heart of the matter. Is it true? And the attitudes of a a spirituality, you know, is this a beautiful form of life? And that's not a subjective question. You know, when the Bible talks about putting on the character of Christ, going from glory to glory as we're renewed in his image and so on, is is that image that we're putting on beautiful or ugly? Is it attractive to be involved in the Christian way of life, living or not? You know, there are, there are very uh, unattractive spiritualities out there. There are some that are more or less attractive. How does Christianity fare there? But it's an objective question. Is it, is it if, I, if I appreciate the form of life that Jesus displays... Am I within my moral rights to appreciate it? Is it good that I appreciate it? Is it worthy of appreciation? Yeah. And of course the actions, morally speaking, uh, by the value of, of goodness. So that's why I think it's useful to have in the sort of back of our minds this grid of, of apologetics being about persuasively advocating Christian spirituality in the midst of the fact that people have all sorts of different spiritualities that we need to sort of understand and, and grapple with. Um, that we're doing that grappling and this communication of the gospel through the responsible good use of, of rhetoric. That, that we don't get sort of sidetracked into being too narrow in our evangelistic or apologetic approaches. You know, and there's all sorts of way of being narrow. It's just as narrow to say, it, you know, it's all about social action and community as it is to say, well, it's all about standing up and giving a, an apologetic talk on the Kalam cosmological argument. <laughs> you know, uh, why not do both? And make sure there's some good music playing before and after as well, you know, and that you pay attention to the PowerPoint and you have some good art in it rather than kitsch art and, and so on. Um, as being objectively true and good and beautiful. Now, even in the midst of our sort of semi-postmodern culture, um, although I think it's pulling out of that postmodernism in the last te- decade, um, questions of truth tend to get restricted, as we'll talk later on, to empirically knowable, and scientism and so on. We'll have a little look at that. Um, but holding on to the value of truth, the church has done pretty well at that in the midst of our culture. And goodness, because we're hot on kind of sin... And, you know, you can't really have sin unless you have an idea of what you should and shouldn't do, and, and that being something that's objective. Um, but even the church has largely dropped the ball on beauty um, in, in the West. And I think that's an element of sort of church life and gospel communication and evangelism that we need to uh, reappropriate and have more, more confidence in. Um, the objective beauty of Christ and the way of life that he calls people to and the way in which you can communicate that to people through good art 
um, as part of uh, apologetics and so on. Uh, now, <coughs> all of that information <laughs> may suddenly seem to folks as a grievous burden. You think, good grief, there's all of those different elements to think about, and this and that and the other, and art. And, uh. um, let me encourage you to look at it as a weighty joy rather than a grievous burden. Um, apologetics isn't merely an act of loving service to God and to neighbour, as indeed it is, uh, but also to encourage you that it's something that's good for your own spiritual maturity, getting more involved in, in this area. Uh, just as spiritual maturity, I think, should produce an enthusiasm for apologetics, in the sense that I've talked about it, so an enthusiasm for apologetics should lead to a greater spiritual maturity. And again, look at Colossians 4, uh, 4 to, to 6. Uh, so it's useful for discipleship as well as for you know, evangelism. It's for the, for the insiders as much as for the outsiders. Alistair McGrath, uh, not the most flattering photo of Alistair McGrath, but uh, there we go. A uh, quote from his book, The Passionate Intellect. Um, he says, we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he doesn't also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. Part of the process. We must see ourselves as standard bearers for the spiritual, ethical, imaginative and intellectual vitality of Christian faith. Working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live our lives. Above all, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God, says McGrath. True apologetics engages not only the mind, but also the heart. And we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. We are thus called upon to demonstrate and to embody... See, it's about us as well as them, as it were. It affects everyone. Uh, to demonstrate and embody the truth, beauty and goodness uh, of faith. Uh, so briefly, uh, five practical steps on starting out on a journey in apologetics. Uh, a good place to start, of course, is with various scriptures that I've listed there. Studying and praying into those relevant scriptures. Fostering appropriate openness about our own doubts and questions concerning the truth and goodness and beauty of Christianity. And we need to have an environment where we feel safe to say things like, I find some passages of the Old Testament really puzzling. <laughs> or, why did God allow those thousands of people to die in that earthquake? Or whatever that we should always seek honest answers to honest questions. Now, some questions are not honest. They are a smokescreen. Uh, they are the kind of question that you're only halfway through answering, at which time you've already got another five questions that have landed on your plate. Um, you know the kind of situation. But they are honest questions, and they deserve honest answers, even if that honest answer is... That's a really good question. I haven't thought much about that before. I will go away and think about it more and come back to you. Or go and ask someone else. Or I'll do a bit of Googling. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll go and do a bit of reading. Whatever. Um, that's good ethos to say that. It shows we don't think we know it all. I know. We're not pretending to be something we're not. Uh, learn without ceasing at an appropriate level. 
in theory and practice. We live in a, a kind of golden age of available materials for this. Um, not only in books and websites and so on, but if, if you're not even a particular reader or whatever, the, the resources now that are available in terms of podcasts and, and videos on YouTube, um, Bill Craig's Reasonable Faith YouTube channel, uh, etc. Uh, the Be Thinking website increasingly has a lot of video and um, uh, audio material on it, uh, selective and ar- archived there. And wisely put ourselves in a position to, to give our apologia for the hope that's in us to those who ask. Um, try and take or create the opportunities to dialogue uh, with non-Christians um, and do it individually and corporately as well. It's not a, it's not a solo mission. You know, um, of course, we're all called to do this at, at sort of different levels of appropriateness. Okay. Not all of us are called to be in a sort of full-time apologetics ministry, like guys like McGrath and, and myself are. But as the 1 Peter 3.15 verse shows, we are all called to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us uh, at an appropriate level. And uh, it's useful for us to uh, try and do a bit of study and boning up beforehand uh, so that's uh, a sort of background frame of the area and uh, first uh, practical uh, advice on it as well which brings us to about 10 past 3 so I think we've got about 15-20 minutes that we can use for questions before there's a tea break is that right? Am I on time? Good so do Ask anything you would like. Um, I mentioned my books. I mean, the table over the window there, I've got a selection of my books that you can have a look at over tea time and whatever, um, just so you can have a, a, a little look at them. Um, I will sell them to you if you want me to today before I disappear, and I'll do it at a knockdown reduced cover price of only 10 quid per book. Oh, yes. Um, but that will save me having to carry them back to Southampton. But... Uh, you can, you can get them all on um, Amazon, and a number of them, I believe, you can now get in Kindle form, which is some sort of modern-fangled electronic thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going to try my cold tea now. Mm. What's the most frequent area do you find which where people want to, you know, non-Christians mm. want to, yeah, I mean, there's a certain person relativeness to this. I think there are there are certain perennial issues. They're just like the obvious questions that come up in an area. Um, Pete Mayo mentioned before uses the analogy of of being a washing machine salesman, and if you're a good washing machine salesman you should know that there are some obvious questions that are going to occur to anybody that you're trying to persuade to buy your washing machine. And they're going to be things like, will it fit my kitchen? <laughs> um, you know, is it a wash, just a washer or is it a washer-dryer? What's the efficiency rating? Um, you know, how, is it, what's the guarantee length? Uh, you know, anybody who's got you know, their marbles about them presented with yeah, I think it would be a good idea for you to buy this, is going to ask certain questions. And it's the same with spiritualities and worldviews. So, you know, people are obviously going to ask questions about I mean, the relationship between God and 
the existence of evil and suffering in the world. Major one. Um, that's probably the major objection to, to belief in God. But I think a, a lot of people's questions come from cultural assumptions that they buy into that they might not even recognise that they're buying into, that sort of get in the way. So as I'll talk about a little bit later, I find particularly amongst sixth form boys in particular, um, have just bought into a, a scientific understanding of how we know things. They think science is how we know things. Full stop. <laughs> now, you know, I would say, yeah, science is how we know some things, <laughs> but it's not the only way of knowing anything. Um, but if you think that science is the only way of knowing anything, um, then you're going to have certain obvious intellectual issues with certain Christian truth claims because they can't be known scientifically. Um, particularly moral claims can't be known scientifically. Anything about goodness or beauty, and only certain things under the truth category, can be known scientifically. Um, so I often find myself having to sort of um, try and help people to recognise the assumptions that they're making when they're engaging with Christianity... Uh, and to get them to engage with, with that issue first. Like, well, is it true that science is the only way to know anything? And uh, how can we talk about that? So you kind of, kind of clear the ground before you can, you can approach the main issue, as it were, but you need to sort of clear that ground before you can, you can get there often. Um, and I think cultural assumptions about things like that, and also increasingly today uh, about the, the lifestyle issues, about you know, sexual ethics and... Um, the morals of you know, contraception in the Catholic Church and we, we're all painted with the same brush and so on. So um, those kind of issues, I think, of sort of what would it mean for my lifestyle? Is it a beautiful way of life? We're increasingly at drift with the cultural consensus about what a beautiful way of life is. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you mentioned just... Um Particularly, you know, teenage boys with particularly scientific worldviews and things. Is have you found apologetics and, and this sort of approach to be helpful or useful to come up in conversations with people from a more uh, like a sort of new agey spiritualist kind of? Uh, lots of people I meet are pretty mm. agnostic and like, yeah, whatever, you know, less <laughs> worried about whether things are true or not. And they're just uh, like, yeah, okay, whatever's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I put that under the category of, of one of those cultural sort of assumptions that gets in the way of the conversation that you actually need to dig into. Um, and actually, those people who say that don't mean it. <laughs> they, they, they might sincerely think they mean it, but they're wrong about that. Um, because they do care about truth, um, at least in some areas of their life. And they don't have a, an actual thought-through reason of why they shouldn't worry about truth in this area uh, as well. It's just kind of convenient that they don't have to worry about truth in this area often, unless they're digging down to a very sort of scientific theory of knowledge that would say, well, this kind of Christianity stuff, a lot of that is outside of the realms of anything that we could possibly know. You know? So those two kind of conversations kind of overlap really. Um, Bill Craig points out, we often think, talk about people sort of being postmodern and relative and so on and not really caring 
but they tend to be postmodern and relative about things like values, lifestyle issues, etc. Put that in the sort of religious private sphere camp. But uh, when it comes to um, which medicine should I take um, to cure me of whatever disease or, um, you know, I'm going on a foreign holiday, um, do I want to go on an aeroplane that's been designed by engineers or, (laughs) you know, uh, one that's uh, the rust's holding it together? And actually, then they, they suddenly deeply care about what's true because they think they, you, you can know the answers there sort of empirically and scientifically and, uh, and so on. Um, so it comes back to that, that issue again. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, I mean, it, it's just kind of amusing to me that the way lots of people will sort of say that they're sort of, oh, you know, whatever floats your boat, different strokes for different folks kind of things will will then get very engaged in watching, say, a quiz show on telly. I remember the old, the weakest link. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. You know. The entire drama of that quiz show came from the fact that um, there was a relationship between how many correct answers and incorrect answers they had, and whether they really were the weakest link or not, and whether people would just vote someone off, not because they, they were the weakest link, but because they felt threatened by them and were going to stab them in the back, even though they weren't the weakest link. You know, so we, we had to not only assume that there were true answers to the questions in the quiz, but the entire pathos drama of what was going on in the personal relationships and the people engaged in the quiz depended upon us knowing a distinction between were they acting on the basis of truth or something else? You know, but uh, no, I don't really care about truth. You know, just whatever floats your boat. But ooh, they they voted them off, didn't they? Stabbed them in the back. Ooh, right. Hang on a minute. You wouldn't, you couldn't appreciate that <laughs> unless you were assuming truth, knowability, and stuff. It's just like there, you're you're concerned about it. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Um, you might have already answered this at the beginning, so I came in late. That's right. But when did you personally decide that Christianity was true and it was worth believing? Right. Um, I'm not entirely sure, if the honest answer to that, because I, I was brought up in a Christian family, and uh, I guess in, in that situation, there's a sort of maturation process where, as you grow up, you understand in greater sort of depth and detail what it is you've been enculturated into. Uh, Which leads you to asking repeatedly the question, as I think actually we all ask ourselves repeatedly the question, do I believe this? Um, Belief is not just a sort of one-off decision. So, oh, have I decided to believe in in Christ? Oh, yeah, on June the 26th, I did. Yes, so I've, I've made that decision, so I'll pray. But well, our minds don't work like that. They work on a, well, do I now believe in Christ? Yes, I do, I'll pray. You know, whatever I believed back then. So there's a constant process of asking ourselves, is this true, is it good, is it beautiful? And as you're growing up in, in something, you understand and appreciate it at, at different depths and different times of your life, engages different parts of your personality and so on. And for me, it's just there never came a time when I, I, I ever said no 
to any of those three questions. So I never did a sort of uh, teenage rebellion going away from it and then coming back to it uh, kind of thing. I just had a sort of constant process of gradually appreciating it in a more and more adult kind of way and constantly think at each stage thinking, yep, yep. So I can point to things like, you know, I was adult baptised when I was in sixth form. Uh, There were really formative occasions when I was off at, at university, away from the home environment for the first time and meeting other Christians from different traditions uh, and so on, sort of sorting through that whole thing. Um, but, you know, I, I know my parents say I made a profession of faith when I was aged seven because I'd heard about hell and I thought it was probably not a good idea to go there. <laughs> you know. Now, you might think, not the best of motivations for saying I'm a Christian. But, you know, hey, as a seven-year-old, <laughs> I just took it on trust that, you know, oh, there's a hell, you don't want to go there, you want to say yes to Jesus. Like, okay. That sounds like a good idea. Now, that's, that's not the reason I would give today for why I'm a Christian, you see. Um, so the reasons that we first became a Christian may or may not have anything to do with the reasons that we are now a Christian. And, and that's the important question, really. <laughs> Ooh. Um, how do you feel about the concept that apologetics is kind of an apology for the whole of history... Uh, the idea of there being God kind of was enforced on everyone, and that today people seem to have quite a open view, and it's kind of saying actually we're not trying to enforce anything upon you. It's not a forced decision. It's like this is why. Well, I say why we think that this is why this. Mm. We understand that it doesn't always make sense. But we're trying to actually get across an explanation now, rather than just going do it or die. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, certainly. Christianity should have no truck with the convert or die kind of crusader uh, kind of uh, evangelism. We um, <coughs> should go completely against the, the inner uh, spirit of the whole um, God's created us with free will, uh, wants genuine relationship with you, etc. You can't have a genuine but forced relationship. So, of course, people's freedom comes in there. But in presenting, say, an argument to someone, I'm not simply giving a psychological description of why I've come to believe something. Rather, I'm doing what Aristotle was talking about, pointing out the persuasiveness of something in a way that someone else can understand and grasp. Now, if an argument or evidence is persuasive... Uh, I'm getting them, I'm trying to help the other person to see, to be confronted by the fact that there is a, a good reason for believing something. And our exercise of rationality is not divorced from our exercise of morality. I think we, we have the intuition that we ought to try as well as we can to be rational and reasonable. That there is something immoral about saying... Yes, I can see that all of the evidence, you know, the, the weight of the evidence points to X being the case, but I don't like that. <laughs> that would cramp my style, therefore I'm going to ignore your arguments and do my own thing. <laughs> you see? So, 
there's uh, the rationality and the sort of morality again work hand in, in hand in our natures um, and I, I'm, I'm very happy with the notion that in apologetics I'm trying to put people in as awkward a bind as possible <laughs> I'm trying to attach um, any argument works basically by, by trying to attach a, a price tag to rejecting a conclusion and if you're willing to pay that price tag, whatever that is personally, then of course you can reject the conclusion. But the, the thing to do, the, the better the argument, that's the, the, the weightier, the more costly it will be to pay that price tag. And that's not just merely in rational terms, but I think in, in moral, personal terms as well. Um, so let's take a clear example if you, if you if you were used talking about the moral argument with someone um you know Evan Planting has talked about the way you, you can reduce someone from a state of knowledge to ignorance by showing them a good argument for something they don't agree with you, you can say do you think that there are objective moral values you know that it really is wrong to torture small children just for fun yeah I think that's really objective I discover it it's not invented that's a fact well, if, if you can then give them really good reasons for thinking that there couldn't be such a, a fact, a moral fact, without there being God, whose character is the standard against which we make that moral judgment, well, then that ought to lead them <laughs> to the conclusion, okay, there's some kind of a God. You know, there are moral facts. There couldn't be any moral facts unless there were a God. It follows from that that there's a God. But what the non-Christian might say is, oh, I, I, I now see what I didn't see before, that if there are objective moral values, then there has to be a God. But I'm really committed to atheism. So what I'm going to now say is, oh, well, I suppose it's not morally wrong to torture small children for fun. So they're just reversing the, the argument. And you can see, in a sense, what they've done there is just as logical... As the moral argument, you know, it's just, it follows just as logically, but it really then comes down to the question, which price tag is harder to pay, which are you willing to pay? To have to say, oh, okay, there's some kind of a god, or, or to have to say, torturing small children for fun is not wrong. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, there's, you know, you need the horse to water, make it thirsty, but you can't make it drink. Um, but boy, I think you can attach some very high personal price tags to not drinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>